NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we're going to get started on doing division previews for each of the six NBA divisions, hopefully in time for the start of the season. And we're going to start today with the division that arguably changed more than any other in the sport over this past offseason, and that is the Central Division. So I'm here with two of our Central Division writers, and more specifically, two of our Chicago Bulls writers, Mike Catron and Jordan Strultz. So, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm not too excited to talk about the Bulls and how horrible they are going to be this year, but um, other than that, you know, the NBA is uh, quickly approaching, and... Uh... I'm starting to get excited about uh, actually seeing some basketball. And Jordan, how about you? I've been counting down the days for the season to get started. The Bulls are, you know, they're going to be interesting this year. Um, I'm ready to kind of see what they do with this rebuild. But yeah, more than anything, I'm excited to watch some of the other teams around the league a little bit more this year. Uh, You know, Boston obviously got really interesting. uh, Cleveland. So yeah, I'm just more ready for the NBA season than the Bulls for sure. So because both of you seem just so incredibly excited to talk about this season's Chicago Bulls, We are, of course, going to kick off this podcast by talking about this season's Chicago Bulls. So, as those of you who have been listening to the podcast should know, the previous podcast on this feed was actually the teaser podcast for the hashtag Bulls podcast that Mike and Jordan will be doing throughout next season. And the major talking point of that podcast was the Jimmy Butler trade, which was certainly an interesting trade, but... There might have been a couple of other interesting superstar trades in this division that we will get to, but because the Bulls are both of you guys' teams, what were your thoughts on the Jimmy Butler trade? Yeah, um, I'm not sure interesting is the right word. Horrible, um, or some other four-letter words perhaps would be coming to mind uh, when it comes to the Jimmy Butler trade. And uh, if you go check out our podcast when it starts popping up, uh, hashtag Bulls, uh, we go into that Jimmy Butler trade pretty in-depth, but... The cliff notes are is that I'm not sure there is an angle where you could look at that trade and say that it was a good trade. I I just don't know in what angle you could look at that and go, good job, Chicago. Yeah, you're right there. I mean, it was definitely, like we said, you know, it was bad enough when we first got the trade notification. um, And then it got even worse when a few minutes after it came out that we included our first round pick with Jimmy Butler. So, I mean, that was, you know, it was infuriating uh, at the time. Um, At this point, though, you know, kind of ready to just move past it. Like, yet again, we lost another trade. Um, Now, I guess let's see what Chris Dunn and uh, our rookie can do this year. Um, He, you know, looked better in Eurobasket, uh, showed a little bit more than I, I thought he would show coming out of college. So a little bit of excitement, at least. But I mean, yeah, it's it was a bad trade. Even if Zach Levine comes back to 100% of what he was before, I feel like we we could have got a lot more. Yeah, that that trade continues to get worse too. So when you look at what Cleveland got, and we'll talk about Cleveland, obviously from Boston for for Kyrie for what is essentially a another superstar player, it never made sense to me why Garpax pulled the trigger and had to pull the trigger on draft night because that trade would have been there. In August, that trade would have been there in December. That trade would have probably been there next offseason. Jimmy Butler had two years on his contract, and he was not a Paul George situation, which we will talk about that situation too. He was on a good contract, and he had two years left, and he is a top 10 two-way player. And the best asset we got back was Zach Levine's ACL? I mean, I'm not really sure. But uh, hopefully the highlight of the season was not watching... Uh, Lowry market and play for Finland. 
That's that's all I'm hoping for the Chicago Bulls. So it's hard to talk about the Zach Levine element of this just because we have not seen how he recovers from that ACL tear. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Chris Dunn because on the one hand, Chris Dunn had one of the worst offensive seasons in basketball last year. He finished at 50% in the restricted area, which is well below league average, and 28.8% from three-point range, and not really all that much in between. But I might be in the minority here, but I actually think that people have passed judgment on Chris Dunn far too soon. Ultimately, he's already a pretty solid defensive player, and while defense at the point guard position isn't exactly the most important thing in the world, I feel like... He's gotten a little bit too much flack, a little bit too quickly, just because his rookie year fell well short of expectations. But there have been quite a few very, very good NBA players whose rookie seasons fell short of expectations. So I guess my question for you guys is, do you think that Chris Dunn's rookie year was just a bad rookie year from someone trying to get adjusted to the league? Or do you think there's more concern there in his almost complete lack of an NBA offensive game. Honestly, um, I'm I'm still excited about Chris Dunn. I was really high on him coming out of college. Um, I mean, you look at the coach he played for last year is notorious for not, you know, giving rookies much of a leash at all. And like you mentioned, he's already, you know, an average uh, point guard defender, um, arguably above average. And yeah, I mean, you got to go up against guys like, you know, Steph Curry. You need somebody that can play a little bit of defense. Um, you know, he was explosive in college, you know, excellent at attacking the rim. Um, if he can just, you know, start to hit his jumpers at at least, you know, like a, a respectable average, that's going to help him out a lot on offense. But his calling card is definitely his defense. I think that was, you know, kind of what you should have expected coming out of college, that the defense was going to be what made him an NBA player. So I'm still excited about him. Um, I, I don't think he's, you know, a future all-star, but I could see him maybe making, you know, a few all-defensive teams, uh, in, you know, during his prime seasons. Yeah, I'm not going to go as far as to say excited about him, but he's going to get the chance. He, this team is looking to tank. There are no point guards on this team. Chris Dunn is the point guard for the Chicago Bulls. So if he does have potential, if he could be what, you know, a Marcus Smart type player at some point in the next few years, or at least start progressing towards be looking like a Marcus Smart type player, then that would be a really positive, uh, I think, uh, development. But we're going to see what, what he's made of this year because he's going to get the full minutes. He's going to he's gonna play a lot. And, and like I said, we all know Tibbs doesn't like his rookies. And also, you know, statistically, point guards take a while to develop. So I'm not trying to burn the Chris Dunn bridge like I am the Cameron Payne bridge, but we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm patiently waiting to see some, uh, some semblance of a starting point guard. Speaking of patience, our next team up on the list did basically nothing until about a week and a half ago where they stunned the entire league with the Kyrie Irving to Boston trade. And of course, that team is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, their quiet start to the offseason was mostly due to the fact that they had the second highest payroll in the league coming into this offseason, and now have, I believe, the second highest again, but behind Golden State this time instead of Portland. The Cavs signed Kyle Korver to a three-year, $22 million deal, the last year of which is unguaranteed. Their other signings were Jose Calderon and Derrick Rose both at veteran minimum, but really the meat of Cleveland's offseason was the 
Kyrie Isaiah Thomas trade, which I thought was a massive victory for Cleveland, and Kobe Altman deserves some serious props for coming into his first front office job at, I believe he's 34, and absolutely nailing his first trade. Well, as someone who's approaching 34, it really makes me feel inadequate. But um, I think Cleveland had to, uh, I mean, Cleveland had to do what they had to do, right? Keeping Kyrie around after this, uh, it got out, it leaked out, mysteriously leaked out from probably, my guess is LeBron's camp, uh, that Kyrie wanted out. I think they had to move that trade, and they got some good assets back. They positioned themselves in a way where if LeBron stays, they got some good assets, and if LeBron goes, they they got some good assets for the future. With the re-signing of of Kyle Korver and bringing in uh, two former point guards from the Chicago Bulls, Derrick Rose and Jose Calderon, those were the moves that, that they could do while they were above the salary cap. So overall... They made themselves deeper with that IT trade. It all comes down to whether Isaiah Thomas can be healthy for the playoffs. I mean, you said it right there. It all comes down to if he can be healthy or not. If As long as he's healthy, I, I really like this move for the Cavaliers. Um, you know, as you, you guys have mentioned, they're set up for the future and for now if LeBron stays, which honestly at this point, I, I really don't see why he would leave. Um, this is a pretty attractive roster. I don't really see where you're going to go that it's going to get much better to try and challenge Golden State again. Um, I mean, say what you want about Derrick Rose, but at, at $2 million per year, that's a steal. I mean, he wasn't terrible last year, especially as a backup point guard. Um, you know, maybe he can kind of recapture some of that greatness. Just hopefully LeBron can rub some of that off on him. Um, but I mean, yeah, I like what they've done. Uh, Jay Crowder on the second unit, That's he's going to help take some of the pressure off on the defense. Um, you know, the Corver signing was a little questionable. I guess you're just really banking on him just, you know, being that lockdown shooter. But, you know, a little bit of an overpay, but I guess you pay to keep your guys. I mean, then, you know, and then to get the, the picks on top of it, you know, good for them. They're, they did a good job there. Yeah, so at least they're not just running it back, right? Uh, it's making the next season a little bit more interesting to see this turnover in their roster. Boston's better. Cleveland is deeper. And it's not going to be the same team that we saw in the in the finals the last few years. It's not going to be a rehash of of the exact same season. Uh, it's going to be interesting. And as someone who had to renounce his favorite team recently, uh, I'm excited to see some uh, some differences in this season than last. I don't think enough people are talking about how valuable adding Jay Crowder into that deal is. He has one of the best contracts in the NBA, and he will be such a massive upgrade to the Cavaliers bench. I mean, if you just think about 25 minutes that last year went to Richard Jefferson and Iman Shumpert and giving those minutes over to Jay Crowder, that is a huge upgrade for Cleveland. And in the finals last year, the starting lineups for each of the two teams played relatively close to even, by which I mean the Cavaliers were close to treading water with the starting lineup out there and just got absolutely massacred when their bench had to play against the Warriors bench because the Warriors probably have the best bench in basketball. And anything that Cleveland could do to help out that bench unit was a huge gain for them, especially when Isaiah Thomas had one of the best offensive seasons in league history last year. So if he can keep up anything close to that level of play during the playoffs, this trade is even more of a win for Cleveland. Anyway, moving on to one of the quieter off-seasons in this division, which was an interesting mix of very loud off-seasons and very quiet off-seasons. The Detroit Pistons, their major signing was Langston Galloway for three years, $21 million. 
really how you feel about that contract depends on how you feel about Langston Galloway, and I buy into Langston's game, but not at that price tag. However, the one thing that the Pistons did that I was a huge fan of was getting Avery Bradley from the Celtics, basically when they had to dump salary to get the Gordon Hayward deal to work. But what are you guys' thoughts on Detroit's offseason? You know, all in all, um, I don't hate it. They really they really didn't do much that really moves the needle for me on them on this season anyways. You know, Avery Bradley, like you said, that's a great pickup. I would much rather have picked up him than sign KCP. Um, you basically just got a much, much better version of him in that. Um, I'm much more comfortable extending Avery Bradley next season. You know, you hope Stanley Johnson can step up and take some of the minutes now on the wing and, you know, really take another step forward. Um, a lot of this will come down to how Reggie Jackson bounces back. Um, I, I'm not super confident in him coming back strong. You know, I hope he does. He's a fun player when he's out there. But I mean, I, I think it's just kind of business as usual for them. Uh, I, yeah, it's just kind of where I'm at on them. Kind of didn't really do much for me. Yeah, they're they're still treading water, right? They they made a, a upgrade here. They made an upgrade there. And if they're healthy, they will be technically a better team in a weaker East. So overall, it's going to look better for the franchise from the outside. But if you look at it from the inside, they still have the Drummond question. Is Drummond even a relevant center in the future of the NBA? If he can't even play in fourth quarters where his free throws are a detriment to the team actually winning, um, if he doesn't you know, aggressively step his game up, both offensively and defensively, um, then he's really not a franchise of the guy that they, they thought he was going to be. So to me, they're just, they're still treading water. They maybe position themselves uh, a little bit better for the future with uh, that picking up Avery Bradley there, but I'm not gonna, I'm not seeing a huge improvement from this team. They'll probably sneak into the playoffs because the East is so bad. But Detroit's still got a lot of um, decisions to make about the future, and they're they're dangerously in no man's land, and that's really not the place you want to be in in the NBA. I think, like what you said with Drummond, I mean, they they have to find a way to make it work at least these next uh, you know four years. I don't think anybody's taking a trade on him and giving up anything substantial, uh, you know, twenty three million this year and going up each year after that. Um, I luckily I feel like free throws should be a skill that he should be able to add if he can just get up to you know 60% and kind of cut down on the hack of the hack of Drummond's that'll help him a lot um you know he's still young uh but I'm with you I have my doubts on him being a cornerstone like he needs to be like a second or third piece on a team if they're ever gonna win a championship with a guy like him yeah also I've been saying it for years just shoot underhand uh I know there's a, a stigma against shooting underhand but if he goes from 40 to 60 percent he legitimately becomes a greater asset. So he his value goes up, the amount of money he's going to make us go up, and he'll probably get endorsements for being the guy who shoots underhand. I mean, to me, it's a win all around for, for everyone if he just does it. But uh, it still surprises me that guys who just legitimately can't shoot free throws don't just bite the bullet and, and shoot underhand. Get some endorsements for it. I would go farther than that. I think that Andre Drummond shooting around 60% from the free throw line is an all-star lock. I think that his ridiculous rebounding instincts and incredible athleticism mean that if you can get him to the point where he's not a massive liability for you every time he steps to the free throw line, that is huge, not just for the Pistons, but for the rest of Andre Drummond's career. And it's even more baffling to me that he's not willing to try shooting free throws underhanded when two years ago he was an all-star and he hasn't made it back. And unless he makes another jump, he's not going to make it back again. It could literally mean 
whether he makes an all-star team or not for the rest of his career. Like, that's how important his free throw shooting is going forward. It could be more than that. It could mean the difference between a max contract and one of the contracts that some of these mid-level guys got this year, like just embarrassingly low contracts after the spending uh, spree from last year. So he could be losing tens of millions of dollars uh, simply due to a 25% difference in his in his free throw shooting. And it's kind of wild that that free throw percentage really is the difference between him being uh, a, a key player in the in Detroit's future and the future of that franchise. Um, and, and this is what we're discussing. Like it's it's wild that we're just talking underhanded free throws could literally change the direction of that franchise. I mean, shoot, what's Ray Allen doing right now? Get him to come coach you on some free throws. Like do something if you don't want to go underhand, but figure it out. I, I I feel like I could step out there and hit eighty percent right now, and I haven't picked up a basketball in like a year. I mean, the, you're you're a professional. I feel like you should be able to add a skill like that. Ray Allen's too busy preparing for the 2020 finals to be able to help Andre with free throws. Yeah, you're probably right there. Anyway, this is going to make both of you happy because we are about to discuss Paul George trade, which is, I think, already one of the worst trades in NBA history. And let's just go through this really quickly. Yes, Paul George only had a year left on his contract. I get that. They weren't going to get much in return from him. But... Here's what they did get in return for Paul George. They got Victor Oladipo, who is getting paid more money next season than Paul George. Let that sink in. Victor Oladipo is making $21 million. Paul George is making $19.3 million next year. So Victor Oladipo is more expensive next year, and he's got three more years after that, despite having not really shown that he's more than an average starter. And maybe he takes a leap in Indiana when he's the focal point of the offense because they don't really have much else to focus on on that offense other than Miles Turner. But I just cannot believe that the best offer that the Indiana Pacers could find for Paul George from any of the other 29 teams was Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis with no draft picks. And I can't see any upside in it, even if Victor Oladipo turns out to be maybe a couple-time All-Star. I actually think the, the the players have a lot more leverage in these situations than than we know about. So similar to some of the reports that are coming out with the Kyrie trade, is that there were other trades on the table with the Suns, with Milwaukee, and if Kyrie wasn't going to resign there, well, then why would those teams make that trade? So that was for a guy who had two years left on his contract. With Paul George being a one-year rental and with everyone basically knowing he's going to the Lakers, in fact, they ju- the Lakers just got fined uh, half a million dollars for tampering. Um, so everyone definitely knows that Paul George is going to the Lakers. I'm not sure how many teams would give up much more than, um, well, maybe, uh, there's probably a few teams who would give up a little bit more than Oladipo and, S- and Sabonis, but to me, that's probably one of the, like, an 80% of what you probably probably could have got for Paul George for a one-year rental where he's he's not coming back to your team. I mean, I think Oladipo is arguably more exciting than any of the players the Bulls got back. I mean, you know, maybe Zach Levine if he comes back healthy. Um, so I, I don't hate it. I mean, it's a huge, huge contract, but that's, you know, that's just the way it's going. You're They're banking, obviously, on him living up to some more potential. You know, he's only 25, um, so he's, you know, still got a few years before he's going to really enter his prime. You just hope he can really become a more well-rounded player um the DeMontis Sabonis I don't know I I think I like TJ Leaf better than him so I guess he's just kind of a cheap throwing that you hope develops 
Um, but, you know, like you said, I, I don't know what else they're really going to get. I mean, Oladipo's a decent haul, especially for a guy that, you know, everyone knows he's, he's gone to L.A., like you guys have already said. Um, so they could have done a lot worse. But I, I do agree the players, I think, have a lot more power. Um, that or, like, a lot of GMs need fire because I feel like I could fire up some better trades than the, some of the ones that have gone down. Yeah, and I, I don't hate Oladipo as, as much as, as a lot of people out there seem to. I just hate his contract. It's a trash contract, and it's um, it's just not going to work well for the future uh, of the Pacers franchise. But at least they got someone who can be a, a, a starter in the league back, which uh, the Bulls hopefully did, as long as that ACL goes well. But for both Indiana and Chicago, you should have seen this coming, right? You should be working with the people, the, the players on your team to say, all right, we want to rebuild around you or we want to move you well ahead of the the one year mark where you're basically a ransom to to get off the team where you have to get something back for him and and would it bit would it have been worse for indiana just to leave paul george on the team and and move on like get nothing back for paul george would that have been a better deal yes it would have and here's why in my opinion anyway obviously when you get Victor Oladipo in that trade, Victor Oladipo and his four-year, $84 million contract, basically what you are saying is, we are trying as hard as we can to make the playoffs, and we have somehow deluded ourselves into thinking that that's going to happen. Instead, what's going to happen is, instead of ending up in the 20 to 25 win range that I think the Bulls are probably going to end up in, the Pacers are probably going to be somewhere closer to... 30 wins, say 27 to 32 wins. So not only did Indiana issue getting actual future assets in the form of draft picks, but they've actually made their situation worse by bringing themselves ever closer to the dreaded ninth seed range where you're just missing the playoffs, but also not getting a chance at getting high in the lottery. So I don't think there's any way in which this trade doesn't hurt Indiana. And granted, maybe I'm being a little bit too negative about it, but if they're trying to rebuild, they didn't get any future assets, really, other than taking a chance on Old Depot and hoping that Sabonis turns into something. But at least the Bulls took a flyer on... Flyers, rather, on Zach Levine and Chris Dunn, and they also got a first-round draft pick in this year's draft. They moved up into the lottery in this year's draft. And I think any of those three things alone is more helpful to securing potential future playoff berths than anything Indiana did. And I think their offseason moves around the trade kind of fit in with that. They signed Darren Collison to a two-year $20 million contract and Boyan Bogdanovich to a two-year $21 million contract. And I think those are good contracts if you're Somewhere in the 6th seed through ninth seed area, if you're sort of on the fringe of the playoffs and you want to add guys who can contribute to your playoff team, but I don't see why you would pay either Collison or Bogdanovich that kind of money to be basically 6th men slash spot starters on a 30-win team. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a pretty good point. Um, where some of the moves they made didn't make sense in the off season, and, and as bad as the East is, they might actually be contending for the playoffs if Miles Turner ends up taking kind of a jump this year. But there's a running joke on Twitter, basically saying, "Oh, who's going to start at center for the Bulls cap space?" And that's a really great joke until you talk to someone who is 
in Portland, or maybe you go talk to someone in Indiana, all these teams would love to trade for cap space. And so you can at least give the one piece of credit to the, the Bulls front office is that being cheap at least allowed is allowing them to never make these types of contracts like uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, like um, Darren Collison, where you got this money tied up in these average players who really aren't helping you tank and aren't helping you win either. Yeah, I think that really there's some potential for Oladipo and, you know, Miles Turner to form a, a really good defensive core, um, especially if you can put some some more talented offensive players around them. Um, but you're completely right. They've ham- they've completely hamstrung themselves by giving, you know, 20 million to these two guys, um, even if, you know, just be bad for a year and then use that 20 million to go after somebody else next offseason. Um but, you know, the Bulls do have cap space. They just, you know, took on a trade for Pondexter. Maybe maybe at some point they can try and trade off one of these guys and clear some cap space. But either way, they're going to be set back because of these. Um, but I definitely dislike those signings worse than taking on Oladipo. At least you can, in my, in my opinion, make a justifiable case for taking on Oladipo. But those two contracts, they just they don't make a lot of sense. All right, let's move on to the last team in the division and also the quietest offseason among any of those teams, which is saying quite a lot since Detroit didn't really do all that much. But the Milwaukee Bucks were basically locked into their current team when Greg Monroe opted into the last year of his contract, and their only real move was re-signing Tony Snell for four years and $46 million dollars. And when that contract was signed, my original thought was that I'm not sure the Bucks should have been the team to give Tony Snell that contract. And what I mean by that is, as both of you are probably painfully aware, Tony Snell had a real breakout year last year in Milwaukee after sort of being on the fringes of the rotation with the Bulls, but... Tony Snell was able to have the playing time and success that came with that playing time because Chris Middleton was out and was expected to be out for the entire year and was out for most of the year. But Chris Middleton is going to be back next year, and with Middleton back in the fold, I just don't see where Tony Snell is going to get a large enough role to be worth that contract, even if he does live up to what he showed last year, which was by quite a large margin, the best season of his NBA career. Yeah, you hit it right on the head there. Um, he, he played great last year, but that's, I, I see zero chance of that happening again with Middleton back in the fold. Middleton, in my opinion, is probably the most underrated player in the game. Um, just what he does on both ends of the floor when he's healthy, he's a great fit, especially like for a guy like Giannis. He's a great complimentary piece around him. That you talk about another team that wishes they could probably have some cap space. That's It's moves like that. Um, that you know, Like Mike said, at least we have to give the Bulls credit. At least they haven't made moves like that. I'm a little bit more positive about Tony Snell than most people. When uh, we uh, the Chicago Bulls ended up making that trade with Milwaukee, I, I didn't understand it. Uh, I understood that you know we we needed more point guards, even though MCW can't shoot. And Tony Snell did show the ability to at least guard wings. But in Milwaukee, they play more of a positionless basketball than most teams. And Jason Kidd, I think, with the injury with uh, Jabari Parker, will find a way to. Uh, to get Tony Snell close to the amount of minutes he got last year, uh, he averaged about 29 minutes last year. I think there's still a role on this team for Tony Snell, and I uh, they definitely overpaid for him. But 3 and D guys are really hard to come by in this league, and at 6'7", he's got some length. 
and he's able to guard that that other wing on on a lot of other teams. And I I think he can be fit into this rotation even with Chris Milton because when you have a player as unique and as large as Giannis, and then throw in Thon Maker's uh, ability to to make that roster really just a strange matchup. You can experiment with Tony Snell at different positions because Giannis really just makes up for all of that. All right, so we've talked quite a bit about the outlook for 2017-18 while going through the off-seasons for each of these teams, but I wanted to dive a little bit deeper, and so I have one specific question about each of the five teams in this division. And first up, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Do you think the Cavs are better than last year, worse than last year, or about the same? And my thought is, I think that, as we said earlier, it is 100% dependent on Isaiah Thomas's health. I think if Isaiah Thomas is healthy by, say, December 1st, because I doubt he's going to be back for opening day. But if Isaiah is back by December 1st, I think the Cavaliers are a better team this year than they were last year. If Isaiah comes back, like, mid-March... I think they're about the same, but they'll probably end up with a worse record just because they have even less incentive to try in the regular season than they did last year. And I think the only way that the Cavaliers are significantly worse this year than last year is either if LeBron finally has father time catch up with him or if the Isaiah injury is more serious than people think it is, and he misses most, if not all, of the regular season. Yeah, I would say that is pretty much 100% correct. Um, as long as IT's back, I, I, they're definitely better. Um, they're, they're probably going to have a worse record than last year, but they're going to be a better team as long as they're all right for the playoffs. They got deeper, which they needed to do match up with Golden State. Um, they, they, I mean, really, they, you, you couldn't have done a better job getting rid of Kyrie, um, that, that's, you know, A-plus, like we had said earlier. Um, I, I definitely think they're a much better team. You talk about having Derrick Rose and uh, Jay Crowder coming off the bench. That's way better than anything they could roll out last year. And that's all that really matters with this team, right, is the playoffs. They don't care about the regular season. They're going to make the playoffs in the East, if even if LeBron sits out half the season. So as long as Isaiah Thomas, like you're saying, is even just 85% of what he was last year going into the playoffs, with that depth... They are a better team. Now, are they the best team in the East? I don't know, because Boston I th- got significantly better as well. And can this new and improved uh, Cavaliers team, even if fully healthy, take on the domination that is the Golden State Warriors roster? Probably not. All right, next up, the Milwaukee Bucks. So the Bucks were expected to be under 35 wins last year, actually, with Chris Middleton out. And instead, Giannis took the next big leap in his career progression and became a second-team All-NBA player, led his team in all relevant statistical categories. The Bucks finished at 42-40. and Now, Jabari Parker will probably miss a similar number of games next year to what Middleton missed this past season, but the Bucks actually had a negative point differential despite that 42 wins and Jabari was the second leading scorer on this team last year so do you think that the Bucks will make a leap next season with Middleton but without Jabari 
Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, Chris Middleton's better than Jabari Parker. I don't know if that's a hot take, but I, I think it's true. His presence right there is going to help the defense out so much. Giannis can shoulder, you know, taking up some of the scoring load without Jabari. Um, you know, Middleton, he's a very great scorer in his own sense. Uh, you know, Tony Snow may get some minutes to get a little bit of the scoring load. So yeah, I think they can take another leap. And I, and I do think Giannis, no matter who you really put around him, has room to get better. I, this guy has MVPs in his future. I have no doubt about it. Um, you know, if he really starts, can, can never start shooting a three-pointer, then the league really needs to be scared because you're not going to be able to stop him. Yeah, I, I'm scared of Giannis right now. Uh, I had the pleasure of going seeing him play uh, against the T-Wolves up in Milwaukee last season. And that was, I mean, you were just watching the future of the NBA. You had Carl Anthony Towns running around screens like he's Kyle Korver and doing catch-and-shoot threes. Uh, you had Giannis taking a, a drop step from the three-point line and being at the rim, basically, after a spin move. These Those two players are really just unfathomably athletic. And if... Jess, who is going to be 20, turn 23 later this year, can improve this year because he's 100% going to improve. He's going to learn how to shoot a three. Uh, that shot will come because this shot doesn't look terrible. If Jess can prove this year and you have Middleton's improved defense on the perimeter, I think this team is going to be pushing up against uh, Toronto and, and Washington for one of those top spots in the East. I, I think they are that good and that hard to defend yeah i definitely agree with both of you that milwaukee is primed to make that leap i don't think it is a hot take at all to say that chris middleton is better than jabari parker he's far far better on the defensive end and arguably more useful on the offensive end just because he's efficient from all over the floor although jabari really did improve his three-point shooting last year and deserves a ton of credit for that but Ultimately, Milwaukee ended last season tied for sixth in the East, and one of the teams ahead of them was the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks are not going to win 43 games next season. I feel pretty confident in that one. And I think Milwaukee could definitely push Washington and Toronto for the competition in that sort of next tier below Cleveland and Boston. But moving on to the Detroit Pistons. And the big question in Detroit is, can they be the third team in this central division to make the playoffs? And my take on that is, I think that they are very, very likely to make the playoffs because I think last year was just a disaster for them. I mean, last year went about as badly as I thought it could have gone for the Pistons, and they still finished 10th in the East at 37 and 45. I think if Reggie Jackson can show anything at all next year, that they will be a playoff team. I mean, I think Avery Bradley is a pretty sizable upgrade over Contavious Caldwell-Pope. I think that trading away Marcus Morris isn't as big of a deal as it might seem because I think Tobias Harris is ready for a bigger role and hopefully Stanley Johnson can fill in a bigger role as well. So I think Detroit has a pretty solid shot of making the playoffs next year as the third team out of this division. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I'm actually going to go the other route. Um, their point differential last year was not great and even though the Bulls, the Pacers, and the Hawks are all going to drop out of that playoff race, 
a healthier Miami team, a Charlotte, even though Dwight Howard is not the greatest pickup for Charlotte, it's still Dwight Howard, and that team is technically going to be better than last year. And then with the emergence of Philly, and I think that that Philly-Detroit race will determine the uh, eight seed in in the East. And um, I'm going to be rooting for Philly for sure because Detroit plays a boring brand of basketball. And the only reason they're going to make the playoffs if they do make the playoffs this year is because the East just got that much worse. I don't think that team is significantly better or even just a handful of wins better than they were last year. Yeah, that's that's pretty much all there is to say. If they make the playoffs, it's just going to be kind of by default, and they're going to be an easy first-round series for the first or second seed. Even if Reggie Jackson comes back solid, um, I just don't really see them doing much. They, they, they might sneak in, but they're, they're not making any noise. All right, moving on to the Indiana Pacers. And my question for the Pacers was, can Indiana crack 30 wins? And 30 seems like a pretty low number, given that they won 42 last year. But they also lost their best offensive player and their best defensive player by a pretty significant margin. Now, my thought is that I think Indiana will crack 30 wins. And there's literally only one reason that I think that the Indiana Pacers will be better than 30 and 52 next year. And that is Miles Turner. I am a huge believer in Miles Turner. I think he doesn't get as much credit for how good he is already as he should just because... He was in the same draft class as Carl Anthony Towns and Chris Stapps Porzingis. But, I mean, Miles Turner looks better than any big man that was taken in last year's draft, certainly, with the possible exception of Ben Simmons, and we haven't even seen him play yet. And Ben certainly thinks he's a point guard anyway, so that's sort of been a relevant discussion. But what are you guys' thoughts on where Indiana might end up next year? Yeah, I think they'll finish above 30 wins. I think there's a chance they might be in the mix for the eight seed in the playoffs just because the East is so bad. Um, so I, I think 30 wins is easily attainable. Um, a lot of it comes down to what Oladipo can do. But, I mean, yeah, Miles Turner, you talk about future uh, cornerstones. He definitely is a guy that can be a cornerstone for that franchise, even if he you know, never becomes a, you know, a big points-per-game scorer. Just with everything else he does, he, he's going to be a nice presence for them. Um, I mean, really, you look at their roster, you know, Oladipo, Thad Young, Miles Turner, uh, that that can compete with some of the bottom teams in the East. So I, I think 30 wins is easily attainable for them. I, I don't think they'll crack 40, 41, anything like that. But somewhere between like 30, 35 sounds about right for them. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard a lot of analysis that they should be actually one of the worst teams in the league. And looking at their roster compared to some of the uh, other rosters, they actually have NBA talent on that team, including, uh, like you were saying, Miles Turner, who is an up-and-coming pl- young player. And Victor Oladipo, who they just got, is a completely capable player. And they also have some depth on that team. But when you look at a roster like the Chicago Bulls, uh, some of those players, you're not really sure if you've ever heard their name before if you didn't follow the Chicago Bulls all last year. So I'm really surprised that people are pegging the Pacers to be around 22-23 wins and I just don't understand that mentality. I think they can they can breach 30. I'm not sure they'll approach the uh, eighth seed, but the, the East is so bad that nothing will surprise me. So speaking of the East is so bad, the Chicago Bulls. And I feel bad about asking both of you this question, but the question that I had for the Chicago Bulls was, are the Bulls going to be the worst team in the NBA next season? And my thought on this is that They might have the worst roster in terms of overall talent, but because they play in the East, 
I think that they will not have the worst record in the NBA next season. I think that either the Suns or the Lakers or possibly, possibly my beloved Sacramento Kings will end up with worse records than Chicago just because they have to play tougher competition. But what are you guys' thoughts on where the Bulls stand in the overall rankings for next year? Well, I, I hope they are the worst team in the NBA next year. I mean, that was the whole point of moving Jimmy Butler and assembling this um, roster of, of very young, raw players um, trying to basically make a starter out of Larry Markadon and Chris Dunn. And there's a 100% chance they buy out Wade at some point this year, and they take their sweet time getting Zach Levine back. So you're talking about the only real proven talent on this team sitting out or missing about half the year so with Zach Levine missing the first half Wade missing the second half of the on that team they should be right there in the running for the worst team in the NBA and with Michael Porter and, and Marvin Begley coming out next year I really hope they are the worst team yeah you said it exactly right that's what I was gonna say is I hope so um but the good thing is you know it's it's looking like a pretty good draft class at the top so as long as you finish within you know the bottom three or four you're gonna get a, a solid franchise piece to kind of start building around um you know and then hopefully you know hopefully it's a guy like Michael Porter or something like that and then you have Zach Levine coming off of you know a healthy off season, and then you know maybe you do kind of have a little bit quicker of a rebuild than some of the teams have had to do um but yeah uh they're they're gonna be near the bottom I feel pretty confident in that even if they're not the worst they'll they'll probably be bottom three also the chicago's got um one really important thing going for them they have the worst coach in the league too so that's definitely going to help them lose games yeah don't underestimate the hoiberg effect on that uh, nate mcmillan would like a word <laughs> he, he could have a word i think uh i think fred would win that one uh i fred approached the most starting lineups started he was in the uh, he was one of the top five teams and the only playoff team to be in the top 10 of different lineups started last year like how how can you not figure this out so this is a make or break year for fred hoiberg and my guess is, is he's gonna break yeah i would lean that way what a lovely roster he's got too for his make or break season yeah, I, I would lean that way too, for sure. I, I don't see him being here next year. I, I At least I hope he's not, unless he just makes a, a dramatic one, like, you know, complete turnaround and is just like a completely different coach this year. I just I just don't see it. Well, he's getting the same chance that we talked about with Chris Dunn earlier. This is it, Fred. You have free reign to design the offense however you want. You have, uh, as long as Wade's out of the way, you have no one, no superstar standing in the way saying, I'm not going to play in your system. We've given you a, a, a seven-foot-tall guy who can shoot threes, and we could you can move him in the center, you can move him at the four. Uh, if Nico gets re-signed, which I don't see why he wouldn't be re-signed back on this team, he's another really good piece that would fit in a, in a, in a moving offense. As long as he doesn't play these players like he did last year as spot-up shooters, Nico needs the ball in his hand. And, and Laurie Markkinen, when you looked at him, uh, playing for Finland over the last week, he's able to do more things than just be a spot-up shooter. And if Fred's not going to be inventive with his offense at all, then why was he ever hired in the first place? Yeah, that's 100% correct. There's not really much I can add on to that. <laughs> all right, let's wrap things up here with basically a thought experiment. Although, given what we've already said, I think I have some inkling of where the three of us are going to end up on this one. 
How long do you think it will take for Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks to take over this division and this conference? And I think that in three years, Giannis is going to win either his first or maybe even his second MVP. And the Bucks will be, if not the team in the Eastern Conference with the best record, the team that is most likely to come out of the Eastern Conference and be the Eastern Conference representative in the NBA Finals. But what are you guys' thoughts on where this division is going to go over the next five years? And if there's anyone that might dethrone Giannis and the Bucks as the top team in this division in 2020? I mean, you still got to look at, you know, the Wizards um, with Brad Bill and John Wall. As long as they have those two pieces and Otto Porter can continue to do what he did last year, uh, they're going to be um, near the top, especially when you're talking about three years out when, you know, LeBron is three years older. Um, they're going to have a really nice core then too. Um, but yeah, I think like that kind of that three to five year window is where you're going to be looking at the Bucks as one of the, the teams that's a perennial contender every single year. Um, I think the Wizards will be right there. Um, you know, Boston, they're kind of built to be there in three, four years now as well too. Um, so I, I don't think it's a given that they necessarily come out and, you know, become the number one team in the East. Um, but, but I do think Giannis has MVPs in his future in the next, next three to five years, if not sooner, like you mentioned. Yeah, and if, when you look at the rest of the, the conference like that, uh, a lot of these teams are in that three- to five-year rebuilding mode, right? It, the Pacers uh, set themselves back with Oladipo. The Bulls are looking at don't, – don't have an asset to build around yet, so they probably have three to five years out. Uh, Detroit's in no man's land, so they're probably a couple years out from being three to five years out when they finally blow that up. So really the only team with upside in in our in the central division are the Bucks. And when and I'll I'll sink this into the, one of the next questions that we were going to talk about when LeBron leaves to go out west, Cleveland's going to be 3 to 5 years out as well. So the, this division is looking pretty dismal for the near future outside of Giannis and the Bucks. And as long as Giannis stays with the Bucks and the Bucks can build around him, they're going to be continuing in the in the East with um, probably Boston being the favorite since Boston has uh, acquired so many young assets and draft picks and just good talent around around that uh, that original core. I do tend to agree with you that the LeBron question is a lot more of a when than it is an if. But on the I think ever ever decreasing chance that LeBron ends up staying in Cleveland. I still think that in 2020, the Bucks are a better team just because at some point you would assume that LeBron is at least only a third team all NBA player at some point down the road, right? Like 37, 38, maybe he's second team all. I don't know. The problem is that LeBron James has already thoroughly defied normal NBA player aging curves. And it's hard to bet against him. But on the other hand, I don't think that will matter in a year from now when I think the odds are very, very high that he is, if not on the Los Angeles Lakers, then somewhere in the Western Conference or certainly wherever he is won't be Cleveland. Uh, see, I don't know. I, I'm not convinced he leaves. I mean... You just look at it like, why would he go west? Like, that's where all the competition is. Like, right now, he can basically breeze his way through the east for the next two, three years. Um, and even still, three or five years down the road, I'm 
I'd much rather go up against John Wall or Giannis Antetokounmpo than the Warriors. Even in three years, they're still going to be really good out West. Um, so I, I'm not convinced he leaves. Um, I, I don't know. I seem to be in the minority in that one, so I could be wrong, though. The main reason that I'm convinced that LeBron will leave is because if LeBron leaves, he no longer has to deal with Dan Gilbert. And that seems like the biggest possible plus in like a workplace environment <laughs> setting that I could think of for LeBron right about now. Yeah, and I, I've being from Chicago and being a avid Vols fan, uh, being a LeBron hater has come easy. But uh, if there's one thing I do respect about LeBron is that he's made Dan Gilbert pay a lot of money for a lot of players and got rid of his draft picks. And when LeBron goes out to LA, or um, I'm guessing LA, it could be the Clippers, could be probably the Lakers, to go make Space Jam two and become a even richer athlete and become a, a multimedia mogul he's going to leave cleveland high and dry and that's going to make me happy as a bulls fan um uh, i'm excited to see cleveland down in the depths of the east like he like he used to be but I, lebron's got to probably at least two more years of being oh lebron's on that team they're a contender period and time is undefeated so eventually LeBron is going to wear down. He's going to have to place himself in a situation where he is surrounded by someone who can carry the load. And I don't know if the Lakers are the right place for that, but he might say, you know what? I've done all I can. I brought a title to Cleveland. I've got a few more titles on my belt. No one's beating the Warriors. Let's just go make money and enjoy yourself and, and live in LA. And once he does that, the, the East will be even worse than it was for basically LeBron's entire career. The East has been pretty terrible. And on that cheery note, anything else you guys want to talk about before we wrap up? No, I, I think that about we pretty much covered it all, I'd say. Yeah, uh, the Central Division has got a long, uh, dismal future ahead of it. So a good depressing start to the division reviews. I guess at least they got Giannis. That'll be something to look forward yeah, to. Yeah, hopefully we keep Giannis because I, I like seeing him uh, four times a year. Or twice, I guess. Milwaukee is basically uh, Chicago North, so four times a year. Well, you can find Mike on Twitter at WatchTheBoxes. You can find Jordan on Twitter at DinoBball, D-Y-N-O-B-B-A-L-L. Mike hosts the Watch the Boxes fantasy basketball podcast on the hashtag basketball podcast network so you should definitely give that a follow once you finish listening here you should also be on the lookout for mike and jordan's hashtag bulls podcast which hopefully will start up right around the start of this coming regular season if you've been enjoying the podcast please leave a rating and a review on itunes if you would have any feedback, positive, negative, whatever, feel free to shoot me an email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com, n-i-c-k-a-j.nba at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at n-b-a-j-o-h-n-s-o-n, and feel free to get in touch with me there. If you would rather do that, then send me an email. And as always, thanks so much for listening.